With a lifestyle of service, we can help people live with dignity and purpose and find community, right? And find community where they have a, they have not just a home, not just four walls and a roof, but they have people that are for them, people that love them, people that care for them, people that are going to show up and continue to walk with them on their journey. We can end homelessness for that person, but we have to commit to it over time. We have to commit to the long-term relationship. And we can't just expect, insert name of church, insert name of nonprofit, to fix that for us, solve that for us. What is it that God wants us to do to assist the most vulnerable members of our community? How can we work together to provide the dignity that the homeless deserve? In this episode, President of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, Amber Fogarty, shares how we can transform our social reality through a relational approach that empowers people into a lifestyle of service. We think of homelessness as a transaction that you are hungry and I'm going to feed you. You need a place to live and I'm going to give you a place to live. But we do that outside the context of relationship. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work long term. And we see that over and over again in the approaches that we're taking around the country. And this relational approach, we believe, has to be the way forward. We have to want to be in relationship with the most vulnerable people in our communities. By building relationships, not transactions, with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we can build a culture of service focused on those most in need. This is Living the Call. Amber Fogarty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am honored to be here. Well, that's the privilege is mine. Um, I was thinking about that you must have like the coolest cocktail party intro, uh, you know, description out there because I've met, you know, CEOs and CROs and CSOs and all different kinds of O's, but never a chief goodness officer. So that's got to, depending on the circle of friends, I guess, that you're having the cocktail party, party in, that's got to elicit an immediately interesting conversation. Well, it always has. Um, and I actually passed the torch on that title about a year and a half ago. So now oh, my title okay. is I am simply the president of Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Is and I hired a chief goodness officer. So now she has the delight of being able to tell people she has the coolest title on the planet. So the president doesn't get any additional designation, just president? Just president. <laughs> You're presiding. Well, that's good. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I picked that up somewhere on some bio that you have out there on the web, but uh, but nevertheless, I thought that was interesting. Now, when you when you do, I mean, in those settings, um, and I guess maybe it varies depending on who you're talking to, but how do you describe what you do or, or what work you're involved in? And I even have a, a follow-up question on that anyway, but let's start with that. How would you describe what you do? You know, I describe it differently depending on where I am, but one of the things I say the most often is that I work with the most extraordinary people I've ever had the opportunity to know. And that usually piques people's interest because they mm. want to know who are these extraordinary people that you work with. And I always follow it up with, well, I work with our neighbors who have experienced homelessness. And that's never what they're expecting me to say. <laughs> And so um, it just is a great way to start a conversation to talk about the people that I love so much and who are such an important part of my life and and everything that I do every day. They're the people that drive me to get up and do the work that I do. And so I love being able to share that with people and and share why I believe that they're so extraordinary, because I truly believe that they are the most resilient people I've ever had the opportunity to know. 
And I also believe that they have a tremendous amount of wisdom and that we have a lot that we can learn from them. Because when you have lived on the streets, you have suffered indignity at the highest level. Uh, you have been left out. You've been neglected. You felt abandoned. Um, and it turns out that all of those experiences are formative um, and they teach you a lot. And so our neighbors just have so much to share. And some of my best lessons about resilience have come from them and from their stories and the generosity with which they, they have shared those stories with me. I bet. What's the typical reaction that folks, and again, I'm sure it varies depending on the circle of people you're having this discussion with, but what's the typical reaction? I think people are often taken aback because extraordinary and people experiencing homelessness don't often go in the same sentence. I mean, that's not typically the stereotype that people have in their head about those folks. And so I also find that, you know, there tends to be this, um, oh, you know, you must be a saint or, you know, there's this kind of very strange and I just, you know, I believe that all of us are called to serve God's people. And so I don't think that there's anything particularly unique about about the way in which I choose to do it. I think that all of us are called to serve God's people in different ways. And these are the folks that God called me to serve. And I love creating that conversation with someone and saying, well, tell me about how God's calling you to serve in your life. How do you show up for people um, in ways that inspire you and make you, know, make you feel passionate about the opportunities that you have on this planet? And that, that, I love that back and forth with people because most, most of us are doing things every day to serve people and to love people well. And sometimes we, we tend to hold up there people that do certain kinds of work. And I just reject that. I think that God, God celebrates all of us and he celebrates the ways that all of us are caring for other people and loving other people well. And I don't think that he wants to put any of us at the front of the line because of the particular kind of work we've chosen to do. He wants us to follow him faithfully. Even, even the question about, you know, because I've struggled with this myself, and maybe struggle is the wrong word, but of recent, recently, I've been thinking a lot about this. When you get asked the question of what do you do, or is it work, is it a service, is it a ministry? In a way, yeah, it is all those things, but to your point, it's kind of just, you know, it's the service of of God and of God's people in a way, right? And and so you you kind of have this part that sort of transcends the, you know, typical way that people understand professions, work, career. Because I was thinking about this, I'm like, well, in a way you're kind of you know, making your living by being a Christian, by by really serving people, and that ultimately is what you're doing. And yes, it's work, and yes, it's service, and yes, it's a ministry, but it kind of compartmentalizes it when you put it that way. And what I've found out about you and the work that you do there, and that in, uh, mobile loaves and fishes in general, is that it's kind of transcendent in that way, where at the end of the day, you're really just living a Christian life in in a full sense. Yeah. You know, I, I love to think about it in terms of vocation, right? And I think that vocation encompasses far more than what you do professionally. I think that my vocation, it does include the work that I do every day at Mobile Loaves and Fishes, but it also includes my life as a wife and a mother um, and a sister and a daughter. You know, it, it, it encompasses all of those things that I have been called to in my life and all the ways that God wants me to be the person that he called and created me to be. So how do I show up in, in that way in every part of my life? And how do I do that in a way that's holistic, that doesn't, you know, I don't show up a certain way as the president of Mobile Loaves and Fishes and a different way as a mom to Grace and Colin, that I am yeah. the same 
Amber Fogarty in all of those places. And I think that's something that all of us struggle with. How do we how do we reach a point in our lives where we have become that holistic version of ourselves, where we don't have to wear, you know, a different mask depending on which setting that we're in, that we get to be who we were fully created to be. And that has been my life's journey is I that's what I that's how I want to live my life. I want to be the same person no matter where I am and no matter who I'm with. Yeah, it's like a, a an integrated Christian life. H- did that happen for you all at once? Has it been a gradual thing, like where you don't don't compartmentalize in that way? Personally, I've really struggled with that in my life and my career, maybe more so years ago than now, but where it was definitely like the masks, right? It was, I'm business guy, I am deacon guy, I am husband person, you know? And it was very compartmentalized. What about you? I, I think it's a lifelong journey. I think I'm still on that road to make sure that I am fully and wholly who I am called to be in every place that I find myself. But I think that in recent years, you know, I, I actually think that the pandemic has helped with that. Like it's helped to realize mm. how how holistic our lives are, that our lives cannot be disconnected. You can't disconnect one part of your life from another. And the last two years, I think, have brought that to light for all of us in new and different ways, right? That we realize in so many ways, I think the pandemic taught us that we belong to each other, right? That, you know, we are called to be connected and in relationship with other people. And so I, I believe I'm always on that journey, but I'm so grateful for the lessons of really being able to kind of grow into who did God create me to be? What gifts did he give me that are uniquely mine? And how do I use those in the world? And then how do I also learn not to be hard on myself about the gifts that he didn't give me? Because there are certain Mm. things that I am called and created to do and other things that try as I may, I am not gifted. And one of the greatest examples in our house. Yeah. I mean, I am not, I cannot keep a house plant alive to save my life. (laughs) I've tried to grow things and I am the granddaughter of a farmer and I can't keep a house plant alive. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I've come to accept about myself. I'm not meant to keep house plants alive, but I am meant to be a really great mom to my kids and I keep them mm. alive really well and I love them well. And, you know, I love spending time with them. And so just to know, like God didn't create me, there's no green thumb here, but he gave me these other gifts and talents to use in the world. And I believe that in my relationship with God, that the question always is, how are you using the gifts I gave you? And are you using them fully and wholly in, in every way that you can and I want to be able to answer yes, a resounding yes to that question. It's the parable of the talents, right? Of like, here's what you've been given and what you do with them. I also think that's interesting about what you said um, about, you know, you've got your gifts, but you've come to terms with the gifts you weren't given. In a way, that's also an argument to the whole premise or or idea of community, right? In other words, if I have gifts, but I lack others, presumably other people have those gifts. Together, we can do things that are more interesting. And that's a big part of your whole ethos. And I know it's not just yours, right? It's more broadly a Christian tenet, but this idea that it's relational, not transactional. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it's one of the things that I love the most about the body of Christ, right? that we don't have to do it all. We don't have to be all things to all people that God created community. And he created, he created the community for us to live in and be able to enjoy the gifts and talents that other people have and to be able to lean on those, to depend on those. And I believe in every family, God gave us all the different gifts that he gave us for a reason so that we could lean on each other. We could need each other. 
And he does that within all types of communities. He does that within our parish communities. He does that within our workplaces. When I look at Mobile Loaves and Fishes and I look at the 80 plus people that work here, I know that God created each of these people for such a time as this, that they would be here in this moment doing this work with us, that he will call the right people. He will equip them to walk alongside of us for whatever season it is meant to be for them. Some of us are going to be here. I'm coming up on five years of working at Mobile Loaves and Fishes. I was on the board for six years before that. I've been working with people experiencing homelessness for 18 years. It's been a long, beautiful journey for me. Other people may be called into this work for six months or a year or three years. But if we trust God, we trust that they are on the journey that God has them on and he's leading them and he's going to bring them into this work with us for a period of time to bring their gifts and talents at the exact time that we need them. And then he may send them elsewhere to use those gifts and talents to do something else. And I will tell you, as someone that runs you know, a Christian nonprofit, having that peace of mind as a leader is it's so comforting because mm. I don't worry about the future of the organization. I don't worry. I just trust God so fully. He will bring us the right people. He will bring us the exact people that he has been planning and preparing and equipping to be part of this team because that is his business. This, this ministry is his. It belongs to him. And we say all the time that Mobile Loaves and Fishes has God as the board of directors, the CEO, the president, the chief goodness officer. God is all of it, right? And it, we are the humans that he chooses to steward this for a period of time, but it all belongs to him. That's a, yeah, that's a wonderful way to look at things. And that, that also, I think, um, if I'm reading it correctly, means that every time you meet somebody new, that there's a kind of magic there in a way, right? That like, whoa, okay, this person's in front of me as part of this sort of grand tapestry of opportunity that God's sort of laying out before us. And you kind of have to take that moment seriously. Obviously, when you meet new guests, right, in, in Community First Village, and we'll talk a little bit about what that is for folks who don't know, but just in general, when we come in contact with people, it's like, hey, this isn't by accident, so maybe pay attention. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking for God's, you know, glory everywhere I look and I I find it. It turns out, you know. Yeah. I'll be having lunch with a friend and you know, it'll help me connect something in my head about maybe a particular problem I'm trying to solve and I know that God used that person to say that exact thing that was going to help me figure out how to solve a particular challenge that I'm having. Or I am a huge podcast listener, so being a guest on a podcast is something I love. But I listen to a lot of podcasts and sometimes you'll be listening to a podcast, you know, while you're driving and all of a sudden you, you know what to do about something that you've been struggling to figure yeah. out. You have the right decision to make about something. And to me, I just believe that's how God works, right? He, if you're listening and if you're paying attention, he's going to guide you and direct you. And he's always going to use other people to do that. So we have to be paying attention to every person that we meet because we, part of our role is to discern, why did God send this person into my life right now? What am I supposed to learn from them? What am I supposed to gain from this conversation? You know, how might my life be transformed by this human being that God gave me the opportunity to be in relationship with today? Mm. How do you, okay, so like anybody who knows me or has come in contact with me since I've met you and the work that you do knows that I'm so extraordinarily high on everything that you're doing because I see it as, um, you know, yes, innovative, and it's a it's a new approach to dealing with the challenges of housing instability and homelessness. 
but also because of what I mentioned earlier, which is like, it, it's kind of like this transcendent thing where at the end of the day, you're really just living this sort of integrated Christian experience. And, and by virtue of that, it is successful, right? To kind of put that in, in, in sort of air quotes. But I would describe, and I want you to correct me, okay, but here's how I would describe at least, you know, mobile loaves and fishes or community first is on a practical level, it is a community, right? It's a community that's based on relationship and it has some, you know, characteristics. It is based in Austin. It's like 50 plus acres. I know you've got to prove for some more stuff. I want you to talk about that too. But right now it's 50 some odd acres where previously unhoused folks uh, live and work and and have community. And to me, the most interesting part is that the rest of the community, the outside part of Austin in this case, also interacts with that with that community in a way that makes it less other than typically these kind of situations might be. H- how am I, how am I doing? Is that somewhat? You're knocking it out of the park. <laughs> All right, good. See, I've got I've got a future in this. I've got a future in this. But um, but that last part in particular, Amber, I think is really interesting and is so often missed. And I think you guys have just nailed it in the sense that you really can't have community, uh, you know, kind of hermetically sealed. In other words, even if you're successful at creating community in one place, but it's detached from the rest of the broader community, it kind of doesn't live up to the fullness of the potential. I would agree with that completely. And our vision as an organization, our vision isn't to end homelessness. It's it, Our vision is to empower communities into a lifestyle of service with the homeless, with people that have experienced the indignity that homelessness is, right? And empowering people into a lifestyle of service means not that they're going to come volunteer once or twice, but that their their mind is going to be changed, their heart is going to be changed, and they are going to move through life differently because having a lifestyle of service has become the only way they know how to live. That's what we're about. And mm. in doing that, what we're what we're inviting people into is thinking about people who have experienced homelessness, not as someone that you are there to serve, but someone that you are in a relationship with. And when you do that, everything is with them, right? Mm. We're not doing anything for our neighbors or to them. We're doing it with them. And so, and that's the essence of relationship, right? And I think part of the mentality about homelessness in this country has been that people need to be fixed and repaired. And if that's true, that's true for all of us. We all need to be fixed and repaired. We all have all kinds of brokenness inside us and all kinds of struggle. But how well do any of us respond to someone trying to fix us? Mm. Not, Not very well, as it turns out. We actually pretty actively resist it. But when someone's in relationship with you and they are loving you and walking alongside you and you build trust with them, you're open to their feedback about how you might need to continue to grow, how you might need to think about something differently. And so... That's what we're trying to accomplish here, right? We're, we're simply trying to bring people into relationship. And what I love about what we do is that we're bringing people that wouldn't necessarily have been super likely to be in relationship, right? I've, I believe that we bridge the gap in Austin between the people who have experienced the most extreme poverty in our city and the people that experience some of the most abundant wealth. Mm. And it turns out that when those two groups of people are together, they're so much more similar than either of them ever realized. Because 
we all have the same kinds of struggles. We all struggle with a lot of different things. And it turns out that one of the, the two biggest areas that people think about when they think about people experiencing homelessness are mental health and addiction. And somehow we attribute those to people experiencing homelessness as if they're the only people that, have, that happen to walk through those kinds of experiences. And it turns out that in every one of our families, we have folks that are struggling with those things and we're walking alongside them. And a very small percentage of the population in this country experiences a profound catastrophic loss of family that means that they are experiencing homelessness. And when they walk through those things, they're doing it alone. They're doing it mm. without a support system. And I believe the body of Christ, we are supposed to be, we are called to be, it is so gospel centric that we're supposed to be that forged family that comes in there. And so that's what we're striving to do here, to create that connection, to create that relationship. And if we do it transactionally, as you said, if we think of homelessness as a transaction that you are hungry and I'm going to feed you, you need a place to live and I'm going to give you a place to live. But we do that outside the context of relationship. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work mm. long term. And we see that over and over again in the approaches that we're taking around the country. And this relational approach, we believe, has to be the way forward. We have to want to be in relationship with the most vulnerable people in our communities. I think part of that is just the fact that maybe as a culture, we're so super utilitarian and pragmatic about things that we look at, you know, challenges as obstacles to be overcome or things to be solved. And I get that because there's, there can be a good thing about that. But the challenge there is that you then tend to look at everything as, you know, some, something's broken and this is the tool I use to fix it. And if you're just thinking about tools and solutions, you're not really thinking about people too much. One of the, one of the insights that has helped me understand this whole journey of, of, of the unhoused essentially is the, the sort of slight pivot between rather than thinking of homelessness as something to be solved, viewing it as an, as a condition to be healed. Right. And that healing connotes all of these other things that you've, that you've talked about. But you said so much. I just want to touch on one thing because there's like five hours of content that it just in the last thing that you said from my vantage point, but one thing that you said, and I want to know how people respond or hear when you say, you know what, we're not trying to end homelessness here. Like when you say that, that's arresting to people that are like, wait a minute, then what is this about? Like, you know, do you, do you get a lot of like cynicism when you say something like that to, 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 to folks? We do. You know, I think that Typically, it takes some explaining so that people understand what we mean. But ultimately, if, if you understand that the single greatest cause of homelessness is the profound catastrophic loss of family, when you really think through that and understand that and unpack it, you're going to understand that homelessness is something that is going to continue to be with us because mm. we are experiencing culturally a time unparalleled in when you think about the brokenness of the family and the disconnection that happens. And that happens for so many different reasons. But one of the simplest and the least controversial is just geography, right? We just live further away from the people in our families now, right? We have moved apart and we used to, you know, stay our, our, our own families, our own tribe, our clan used to stay close to each other and now we're dispersed. And so you can have, I have family members all over the United States. My husband's entire family lives in Ireland. We, you know, we are navigating the complexities of that all the time. And all of us are doing that in our families. So if you understand that simple cause of homelessness, that it's the profound catastrophic loss of family, people are going to continue to experience homelessness. Now, what I want 
for us to understand as a culture is that with a lifestyle of service, we can help people live with dignity and purpose and find community, right? And find community where they have, a, they have not just a home, not just four walls and a roof, but they have people that are for them, people that mm. love them, people that care mm. for them, people that are going to show up and continue to walk with them on their journey. That we can, we can end homelessness for that person, but we have to commit to it over time. We have to commit to the long-term relationship and we can't just expect, you know, insert name of church, insert name of nonprofit to fix that for us, solve that for us. And I'm going to share with you, I, um, Stephen Colbert has this um, quote that he shared recently that just, it just blows me away. And it's, you know, he puts it out there and it's pretty blunt. He says, if this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to just pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are. Or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition and then admit that we just don't want to do it. Amen. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, I mean, this is what Jesus called us to do. He said, the poor will always be with you. And, and I was going to ask that, you about that quote too. I was going to ask you about that scripture, about what, what you thought he meant by that. But I think you've answered that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think he meant it literally. They're always going to be with us. And, and I'm always going to call you and invite you into relationship with them. And, and I'm going to invite you into relationships that will change your life, that will form your heart, that will help you understand who I am in the world so much better. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think people, it, it almost requires doing it in order to get it right. It's like the, 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 the kind of the scales fall from your eyes, the more you do it, it's tough if you're outside of it. Right. But a lot of that reticence, selfishness, whatever you want to call it of us not loving fully is, is kind of this misapprehension about what is required in order to do it. Right. Which is this sense that, well, I have to give a lot and eventually I'll be depleted of my ability to give and therefore it's really hard and all this other stuff. What you never consider in that calculus is the amount that comes back towards you, which is God's whole style, right? It's like, yeah, this is going to be hard, but in doing it, you're actually equipping yourself to continue doing it. It's like, right? It's, it's, such, it's like the genius of God. I found this just as a small point. I found this when we fostered our, our you know, we have, we have foster kids. And when we fostered our, our first, uh, it was brother and sister, uh, you know, set of fosters. I remember hearing from people like, oh, that's amazing. I could never do that. That's so nice that you do it. And I was like, I was really puzzled by that response. I was like, well, wh- why do you think you could never do it? And then when you get at it, it's like, well, because it requires all this work and I'm putting myself out there and I'm being vulnerable and my heart can get broken. I'm like, well, yeah, but in the process of doing it, you actually gain so much that you're being strengthened in order to do whatever those things actually are. But you're not going to get there if you don't do it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I get a similar response when people hear about the work that I have done for so long. They're like, I could never do that. I could never even so much as talk to a person on the streets. I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. And and honestly, my response to that has changed a lot over the years. And my response has become that's okay if you couldn't do this, but what do you think God is calling you to do? Mm. Because this is what God calls me to do. And just because he's calling me to serve people experiencing homelessness, I'm a hundred percent sure he's not calling every single person to do that in the same way, right? He's called you, you and your family to foster care, right? 
And he's called, you know, I have friends that do all of this amazing work. I have a friend that works with refugees and it's incredible. I have another friend that works with people with disabilities. And I believe that that is God's design, right? God's design is to uniquely equip and call each of us to do different things for his kingdom so that we can meet the diverse needs of the world. And so it's okay with me. And I always tell people, you're not going to offend me if homelessness isn't what God's calling you to. What I want is for you to come alive by finding whatever God calls you to, because I am alive because I love what I do. I'm Mm. so passionate about what I do. And I want you to find whatever that is for you, whatever God calls you to that is going to, you know, make you jump out of bed in the morning and be so excited that you get the opportunity to serve God in this way. When did you first realize that this is what God had called you to do? That's such a great question. You know, God is very tricky. And, um, you know, I was on this whole path in my life. Um, Way back in my 20s, I was was convinced that I was going to be a software CEO, which I started my career as a corporate software marketer and got my MBA um, pretty early in my career. And when I was approaching the end of my MBA program, I went to a Catholic university, St. Edwards University here in Austin. And part of the capstone experience at St. Edwards, when you're doing your final class and your final project, is for them to bring in nonprofit board members and for you to consider how do you use your MBA to make a difference for these nonprofit organizations. And I, when I think about it now, I just imagine God's like delight when he brings these people into my classroom, knowing that this is going to be the beginning of like, it's the first domino that he pushed over that was going to start this whole progression in my life. But genuinely, it was this one simple act where these nonprofit leaders came in and I went home that day and the question was very clear from God. Are you doing what I'm calling you to do? Mm. Are you using your gifts in the world in the way that I'm calling you to use them? And I knew at that moment that the answer was no, I'm not. I'm my life is kind of all about me and all about what I want. And so I really I started this discernment process and really started to pray about God, what do you want me to do? What is it that, you know, you're asking? And we joke at Mobile Loaves and Fishes, like that's among the most dangerous questions to ask God because he's like, he's like, oh, I have a whole plan for you and you just open the door for it. (laughs) I call those, those are the scary prayers. You know what I mean? Like, uh, tell me what you want me to do or do with me as you will, right? Because it's, I mean, fundamental. Yeah. And, And that's genuinely what I began praying in that moment. And Ultimately, the answer that I got was I I needed to quit my job, which I did. I quit my software job after I finished my MBA and I did a year of service. And the program that I did was called Holy Cross Associates. It was a Catholic volunteer program, very similar to the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, although the Holy Cross program doesn't, it's no longer around. But um, it was one of the most transformative things I've ever done in my life. And the way the program worked, you got to apply to the program and you didn't get to decide where you would live, nor did you decide the kind of work you would do. And so in God's great sense of humor, he picked homelessness for me and knew it was my path in life. And so he placed me at this place called Andre House uh, that was run by the Congregation of Holy Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. And that was where he placed me as a full-time volunteer uh, for an entire year. And pretty early on in the experience, I knew within a month or two, these are my people. This is mm, what this is what God yeah. has called me to do. I knew. And before that, you hadn't had any interaction, experience with, I mean, with, with I, this in particular? <laughs> I grew up um, in a super Catholic home. My parents were the youth ministers of our church. So we volunteered here, there, and everywhere. So I definitely did some soup kitchens along the way. I had a lot of 
experiences serving people in a variety of different ways. We did disaster response, you know. I had done a lot of different things, but I never felt particularly called to people experiencing homelessness until the call, until the mm. true I'm there and I'm doing the work and God is like he was very clear. Like this is this is what I this is what I want for your life. These are your people and I want I want you to find a way to serve them no matter what you do professionally. And so I have worked in homeless services off and on in that 18 plus years. Um, other times I've had other, I've done other kinds of work, but I've served on boards. I've been, you know, a passionate advocate. I've been a speaker who's gone out and spoken about homelessness. Um, and rarely a day of my life ever goes by that I'm not educating someone that I encounter about this issue because I tend to be the, the person that people come to when they have questions about homelessness, when they have questions about how to talk to their kids about it. Um, I'm the person that they call because they know that this is, this is what I'm passionate about. This has been my life's yeah. work. And so I just have tried every day for the last 18 plus years to just continue to show up and ask God, what else do you want me to do? How else do you want mm. me to serve in this way? And clearly, you know, he led me all the way to be the president of Mobile Loaves and Fishes 18 plus years later. So he had a plan in all of that that I was clearly not aware of, but I was just trying to follow his lead. And not the kind of thing I'm sure you would have anticipated being in that little Andre house in Phoenix, that this would be, uh, <laughs> you know, the, one of the outcomes of, uh, of that experience. Yeah. How, let's, let's double click a little bit into the whole advocacy thing, um, which of course I can affirm and attest to you, you have been, I'm sure unbeknownst to you, uh, you know, emblematic in a lot of the work that we do here in LA. Uh, and, you know, we, we were deeply, deeply uh, inspired and motivated and, uh, you know, influenced by the work that you've, that you've done over the course of that period of time. Now, where are we today with homelessness? How has this evolved, changed? Like, where, are, where would you say we are in this maybe American unhoused journey? Well, I would say we're, we might be at one of the worst points that I've seen in my 18 plus years of doing this work. Um, what I hoped the pandemic was going to do was bring more compassion and empathy as a country to this issue of homelessness. Um, and I think that it had that impact in certain ways and with certain folks. But I think that where we are today in the United States with homelessness, we're at a place where it has become highly charged, deeply political. Um, it's, been, it's become something that d has divided people. And, but I will tell you that I have this conversation with you today as an eternal and relentless optimist that I really and truly believe in my core, that homelessness can be something that unites us in our communities rather than something that divides us. Because I really believe that even when people think that they have very different perspectives about the issue and about how to address it, that ultimately, I believe we all want the same things. I, I believe that we, we want people to be cared for. We don't want people to suffer on our streets. Um, we don't want people to die on our streets. I really, I really think that those are things that, by and large, we agree on. And to me, it's kind of like most other you know, heated issues in our culture today. We are far more aligned than we are divided, but our rhetoric makes us believe that we are you know, millions of miles apart from one another. Hmm. And where, where does the political kind of division, like, where is that fulcrum? Like, it's, it's, it's more politically an issue now because of why? Well, I think, you know, the visibility of homelessness tends to be a thing that 
causes a lot of political division, right? The more visible homelessness is in your community, the more divided people become about it, right? And so we've experienced that here in Austin. And I know there's a lot of cities, I know all over California, y'all you know, tend to experience that. Oh, yeah. Um, the more visible it is, the more divided we become. And ultimately, you know, we're, we're arguing about, you know, what to do about it. And a lot of times, you know, one of my favorite things to say when people are really fired up about homelessness and really angry about it, one of my favorite things to say is like, how do I pivot this conversation and say, you have so much passion and I can see that you are so frustrated by what's happening in our community. And I would love to have a conversation about how we can channel that anger, that passion that you feel into ways that you could be part of helping us move forward and really make an impact in our city. Because people are, they are frustrated. They are angry. But to me, that means they care, right? It means they care enough to get fired up and let their blood pressure boil over this issue. Well, then we can channel that into them doing good and then playing a role in pushing things forward. And I've seen that happen, you know, in Austin so many times with so many different people. And I believe that at Community First Village, we have the advantage of having a 51 acre master plan community that I can invite people to and say, mm -hmm. hey, I would love to meet with you. I would love to show you this village. And I would love the opportunity to have a conversation about how you feel about homelessness, how you feel about what's happening in our city. And I would love to be able to help you return to a place of hope. Because I think that part of what drives the negativity and the, the political conversations is hopelessness, like hopelessness that we can't do anything yeah. about this, that we're, right. that we are There's stuck. nothing to be done. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I reject that. I think that there's so much that we can do because our community, we have a community of people that care, right? And that's, that's, those are the ingredients that you need. You need people that care and people that are passionate. And at Mobile Loaves and Fishes, every day I have a front row seat to abundant generosity, to God's goodness in all these ways that amaze me and astonish me because people are fundamentally good and fundamentally they want to be generous. And so how do we help them figure out what that looks like for them, figure out how they can participate in lifting their neighbor off the street into a community where they're fully and wholly known and fully and wholly loved? Yeah, it's kind of trippy because I think a lot of the... Um the disconnect or that frustration or that passion, because I appreciate your sense of optimism that you view it as passionate, but some of that, that energy, let's just say that comes up around this subject is, you know, oftentimes in my view, kind of from a misapprehension that looks at, at this as a very complex issue, right? You hear that terminology all the time, right? There's this great layers of complexity, but when you tease out how much of that complexity is driven by a lot of approaches or again back to the solution or tools that have been set up to try to solve this if you if you remove those as as sort of like you know part of the complexity what you end up with in my opinion is actually a very simple issue which again i think you guys illustrate in the sense that like hey we're walking with people we're accompanying them right we're in relationship with them that doesn't mean everything's going to go well all the time but just means that you're there and if you just do that and kind of focus on that the, the, the rest of the complexity has a way of sort of, you know, taking care of itself. But if I think that this is this like calculus problem that has all these variables and that I have to, you know, solve for each one of those, 
it does create a sense of overwhelm and then leads you to the solutions, which are sort of more complexity potentially, right? Adding more layers of things on top of that bureaucracy or other issues. And so you can see where, at least I, I do see where some of that frustration may come from, but it might be, you know, from the sort of misunderstanding of the way to approach it. What, what, what do you say? I would agree with that. You know, one of the things that we evangelize, we have this belief that homelessness exists at the intersection of so many broken systems and layers of trauma, right? And if we're going to try to solve for all of that, we're going to try to solve for a broken foster care system, a broken criminal justice system, a broken education system, a broken system for physical and mental health care, a broken system for addiction recovery. When you look at all of the complexities of those systems, that's overwhelming. But when you look at, when you think about it in terms of seeing the person in front of you and being in relationship with them, and then recognizing that you can build this beautiful community of people that are going to join you in being in relationship with this person, that changes how we look at this, this challenge. It's like, I, if I can look at this person, the beauty of this human being that God created in his image, and I can be in relationship with them, I can get to know them and understand their struggling and suffering. I will tell you that for me, Really understanding someone's story helps you understand what, what has gone on, helps you understand the behavior that you're seeing. And there are certain neighbors where the more I hear about their story, the more I understand the behavior. And um, Father Greg Boyle, in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, he has, he has this line where he talks about understanding you know, this bad behavior as the language of people whose burdens are more than they can bear. Mm. And that... That is in my head all the time when 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 we're seeing some you know behavior at the village that is just like, "Whoa, what is going on here?" Part of my prayer is, God, help me understand what burdens are more than this person can bear mm. so that I can meet them in this moment and I can help to bring comfort and bring peace and not further escalate a situation because if if I make that situation about me and my re reaction to this behavior and how I feel about this behavior. I'm missing the opportunity that God's giving me to understand the language of the deeply wounded. Yeah. You know, and he's placed this person in front of me in this moment and he's calling me to respond. He's not calling me to react and freak out. He's calling me to prayerfully discern how do I love this person in this moment? How do I care for them in the midst of everything that they have endured in their life, all of the trauma that they have experienced? Mm. That changes the way that we think about it. And I will tell you, there's a book that I read last year and read again already this year called What Happened to You? Mm. I mean, it's by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. And it really, it to me just solidified so much of what I believe and what I have experienced in doing this work that what we're always asking people who experience homelessness and people who you know, don't fit into the neat little box that we have in our culture that we think people need to fit into, no matter what struggle they have. We always want to say, what's wrong with you? Instead of what happened to you? What, yeah. what pain are you carrying? What suffering have you endured? What trauma are you carrying with you today? Because when you understand that about someone, it changes everything. It, cha it, it helps you to understand the behavior that you're seeing in front of you. How have you been cared for or understood or, you know, better related to by virtue of this, 
you know, relational and kind of community approach that you fostered. How is it, how is it cared for you? Well, I will say that in this community and in my life in general, I, I feel deeply known and deeply loved. Mm. And I think that is God's design. I think God wants all of us to be deeply known and deeply loved in this life. And he places people, you know, in our vicinity to be able to do that, to, for us to be able to build and create community. And I think that this journey that I've been on in, you know, trying to walk alongside the people that God has put in front of me has just taught me that if we desire to be fully and wholly known and fully and wholly loved, we have to be open and willing to do that for other people. But we also have to be open and willing to allowing people to know us and love us, which means we have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to talk about the difficult things that we've endured in our lives, the struggles that we've had. And I think the more open I've become about that and the more vulnerable I've been willing to be, the more known and loved I feel. Mm. That's beautiful. That's worth the price of admission right there, huh? I mean, at least yeah. it should be. Well, and, and what I'll add to that is that guess who taught me that? People who have experienced homelessness because That's right. they are so willing to be open about their struggles and their suffering. And most of us who've always had a home, we curate the version of us that people see through our social media profiles, you know, through the way that we show up in the world, the way that we dress. And it's like we, we try to hide and shield people from the difficult parts of our lives. And what I love so much about my friends um, who've experienced homelessness is they're just, this is who I am. This is what I've endured. I have suffered and it sucked. And, but there's a beauty in that willingness to just be vulnerable and share that so openly. And that's taught me a lot about, you know, I don't want to hide behind, you know, who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do in the world. I just want to be who I am and who God created me to be with all of the, the gifts and talents God gave me, but also all of the burdens that he gave me to bear. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, that's really just, you know, authenticity is what you're kind of describing. And when you live in that authenticity of who you are, who you were made, and when you're, you know, carrying out the mission that God has put before you, you know, things just, uh, they just work. And you kind of live that, that fullest version of yourself. And there's no doubt in my mind, uh, for my own life, how well, how I've been benefited, um, you know, similarly by the interactions that I've had, you know, with folks who are unhoused. Now, Amber, I know we've got a hard stop coming up. So before we get to our final uh, segment here, wait, what? Um, you got a lot of stuff that's going on and, uh, and a lot of, you know, new things, new areas of development um, for mobile loaves and fishes. And I want to give you an opportunity to share with folks what some of that work is and where it's going and also how people can you know, get in touch and follow along and get involved, you know, in this kind of community experience that you guys have created out there? Well, God is, has been so good to us and he's created an opportunity for us to develop 127 additional acres and build 1400 new homes. And so that is wow. on our horizon and we are in the site development process right now. And we hope to break ground uh, later this year, hopefully in October. And so there's just so much opportunity for us to continue to grow our impact, grow the number of people who call Community First Village home, grow the number of volunteers who want to come alongside us. And so my invitation to everyone who's listening to this podcast is to look in the mirror and 
ask yourself, what is God calling me to do for his people? What is God calling me to do in my community to serve people in need? Whether that's people who are experiencing homelessness, people who have been, you know, who've experienced domestic violence, whatever that thing is, whatever makes you come alive, how can you take your next step to do more of that? And I, I of course, want to invite you to, you know, check out Mobile Loaves and Fishes. We have some beautiful uh, videos online that you can find. Um, our website is just a fountain of information about the work that we do. Uh, there's a virtual tour of Community First Village that you can take on our website um, that I would highly recommend. It's a great way to just see the beauty of this place if you're not geographically close enough to come and visit. But my invitation really is, what is God calling you to do? How is he inviting mm. you to go deeper in relationship with his people? Take that next step, whatever that is for you. Well, the gauntlet has been dropped, and that's quite, uh, that's quite the challenge. And, and I do hope that people take you up exactly on that uh, to, to look at the work that you're doing, but also to ask themselves that great question about what is that great work that God has asked you to do, because we're all made for greatness. That's just the reality of it. And there's only the moment. So, you know, the time is now, as they say. My prayer, Amber, for you and for all the work that uh, Community First and Mobile Lows and Fishes does is for the great, you know, prosperity of that work to continue and for, you know, that mission to continue to be accomplished in, uh, you know, every single day. And like I said, it's been a great privilege to, to have you on, share a little bit about the work that you're doing, um, and just a great privilege to know you. So thank you very much for being on the show. Of course. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share this time with you. Awesome. And we'll include all the information in the show notes as well uh, so that people can avail themselves of all the things that you've mentioned, including the Oprah book. So we'll, we'll put that in there as well so people can maybe read that. If it's you reading it twice, it's got to be worth at least a single read by everybody else. So um, very cool. All right, Amber, are you ready to play Wait What? I am. All right. Very good. Question number one. Amber, you've mentioned that part of the inspiration of your life's work is based on the experience that you had at Andre House, a hospitality ministry in Phoenix. Now, this great apostolate's namesake is St. Andre Bassett, who was a brother of the Order of the Holy Cross and was actually canonized pretty recently in 2010. Uh, Andre had a great story, too. He was uh, an orphan who eventually discerned a call to religious life after a number of short-lived occupations. He was a farmer, a cobbler, a baker, a bunch of stuff. Really interesting guy. But what many people don't know about Brother Andre is that when an epidemic broke out at a nearby college where he lived, Andre volunteered to be a nurse. And the trickle of sick people to his door became a flood. His superiors got uneasy, diocesan authorities were suspicious, and even doctors called him a quack for the things that he was doing. In the end, though, he needed like four secretaries to handle the over 80,000 letters of thanks that he received each year from appreciative supporters. And in the end, Amber, not one person during this epidemic blank. What is the blank? Not one person during this entire epidemic that he nursed at blank. What is the blank? Died? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Not one person died. You're off to a sizzling start. Great job. Question number one. All right. Question number two. This one's going to be easy, I'm sure. Which of these is false about your home city of Austin, Texas? Which is false about Austin? Is it A, Austin has the largest urban bat population in the North American continent? Is it B, singer Pat Benatar got her singing career started in Austin? Or is it C, 
Austin, at one point, was entirely underwater. Which of those is false? I'm going to go with C. Uh, unfortunately, oh. that is incorrect. Yes, the correct answer is B. There was probably many famous singers that got their start in Austin, but we were referring to Janis Joplin, oh, who yeah, got her Janice. start in Austin at Threadgills, which was a gas station and restaurant where bands played for rounds of beer. Um, no, actually, it is true that about until 65 million years ago, Austin was entirely underwater, and there was it was apparently also the home to like underwater volcanoes, and which is why Austin's cliffs are made. Of this white crumbly rock known as Austin Chalk because of this like great sort of yeah geological situation that was there so all right 50 50 we're doing okay the last one you're guaranteed to get right because as people who listen to this show know every show has a time machine question so here goes Amber here's your time machine question you get a chance to travel back in time to New York City in 1934 after some time getting your bearings, you decide to experience firsthand the way that homelessness was experienced during the time of the Great Depression. So you suss out street corners and bus shelters and alleys, and eventually something catches your interest. And it's singing, a beautiful, soulful singing. You discover that the singing is coming from a young black girl who you will come to learn has been living on the streets for months. A run she's a runaway who's gotten mixed up with a bad crowd and is doing all kinds of things, some of which are illegal, and you take a shine to her instantly, so you approach her. Now, she's very guarded at first, but after some conversation, you learn that she loves to sing and dance and that her name is Ella. Ella Fitzgerald, she tells you. You're amazed that you've happened upon the soon-to-be legend of jazz and popular music whose influence resonates even to your day. And yes, Ella Fitzgerald was, for a time, homeless. She shares with you that there's an amateur night coming up at the famous Apollo Theater, and she's considering entering, but she's reluctant. She feels like she may flop, and she's got nothing to wear. Feeling that this event at the Apollo may be central to her future, you have an opportunity to encourage her at this critical moment, and she's listening. What? Amber, do you say? I say go for it, Ella. Use your gifts in the world to stun everyone because you are going to be a star. Well said. Awesome. And she ended up being exactly that. So live your dream. Amen. Great. Awesome, Amber. Great to have you. Thanks again. Privilege uh, to have you visit the show. You're welcome back anytime. Look forward to seeing you coming up at your great symposium coming up in Austin, which we'll also put a little show note in there as well so people can find out about that. And um, and yeah, just uh, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. Please share this episode with somebody, maybe somebody who's interested in the subject, or even if they're not interested, get a different perspective on the issue of homelessness. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.